Hello, and welcome to the JPAG podcast. Today, we will be reviewing the August edition of the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. I'm Nicole Tyson, and I will shortly be joined by Dr. Paula Hillert, the editor-in-chief of the journal, as well as one of our guest speakers today, author and pediatric and adolescent gynecologist and great colleague of ours, Dr. Krista Childress, and she'll be speaking to us about her publication on the ERAS protocol in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. So welcome. We're really glad to have you. Welcome, Dr. Childress and Dr. Hillard. We're here to talk about um, Dr. Childress's awesome article in the August edition of JPAG. It's titled Enhanced Recovery After Surgery in Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology, a pilot study um, with Abigail Smith and Drs. Kurt Heiss and our special guest today, Dr. Krista Childress. Um, And this study was done in uh, Atlanta from Emory University. And as we all have been reading and know in the surgical realm, that ERAS protocols have really been implemented in many surgical fields now and subspecialties. Um, And in a side note, I mean, they're using a lot of these uh, ERAS protocols in obstetrics as well. And um, seeing a lot of great outcomes with adult GYN, PD, and colorectal and urology surgeries with numerous benefits, reduction in narcotic use, reduction in complications, fewer return visits and ED visits, and we see a tremendous uh, cost efficacy and uh, family happiness with reduction of length of stay, which is super important in these COVID times as well. Um, So it's a great study and it's great to start to sort of advance this in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. So Krista, we just wanted to dive in and ask you some questions. Absolutely, I'm happy to be here. Um, so talk to us, tell us a little bit some about sort of the basic principles of ERAS for sort of our younger readers and maybe people less familiar. Yeah, with the sure. Protocols. So um, this is a, my, one of my favorite topics. I really enjoyed doing ERAS. So the aim of ERAS is counseling, which is a huge aspect to ERAS. So setting expectations for pain management and return to function for both patients and their parents, um, limiting perioperative fasting. So we usually would do six hours. Early postoperative oral intake with general diet immediately after surgery. Early ambulation is a huge component as well. And then another one is pre and postoperative opioid sparing anesthesia. So as we all know, there's been an opioid epidemic. Therefore, we're trying to reduce the amount of opioids being prescribed. Research has shown that scheduled use of NSAIDs such as ibuprofen, Tylenol, and medications such as gabapentin have an even, even better pain control and less side effects than narcotics. It's also encouraged to use local anesthesia, such as nerve blocks, including the transversus abdominis block and the quadratus lumborum block epidurals, and then local um, anesthesia and incision sites for laparoscopy. Anesthesia, our anesthesia colleagues are a huge component to these ERAS protocols. And so what they're doing intraoperatively is using goal-directed IV fluids instead of, so that they don't fluid overload. Um, And then another big part is reducing surgical drains, such as NG tubes and Foley. So we're really trying to move away from Foley use unless it's needed. And if a Foley is placed, removing it right after the surgical procedure. And as you said, there's been great success in multiple specialties in the adult world as well as the pediatric world. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. That, I know it's, it's just an amazing protocol, but you're right. Like a lot of different facets get involved. Um, so what was sort of the trigger to get you? to? Start yeah. So uh, ERAS was actually already implemented at the children's hospital. I actually mostly work at children's health care of Atlanta, which is associated with Emory. And they had already implemented this in pediatric surgery, urology and plastic surgery. So when I came on, Dr. Kurt Heiss, who is a co-author of this um, manuscript, he's one of the pioneers in encouraging ERAS throughout the pediatric surgery world. And so he took me under his arm, and it's been fantastic. So we took his protocol that was dedicated to bowel surgery and basically changed it to encompass gynecologic surgeries. And essentially, since I started at CHOA about three years ago, we've been doing it for all my laparoscopic and open gynecologic cases. And then another nice thing is my physician assistant, Abigail Smith, who's the first author on this article, she also is very passionate about this. And so from the beginning, she's been the one helping me, making sure that all the orders are correct, contacting the patient and giving the appropriate counseling. So it's been a huge success. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Dr. Hillard, you and I talked before this call, um, you had a couple questions about those phone calls with the PA. I did. And, and, and so assistants. right now we don't have a PA uh, working with us. We hope to sometime soon, but we don't have anyone. So it wasn't entirely clear to me um, how many phone calls. It sounds like there was one phone call sort of um, shortly after the pre-op visit and then another call on the day before and then another call sometime in the week afterwards. Am I understanding your, your practices correctly? Right, exactly. So it really depends. There may or may not be a phone call up front. If, I, if she's available in clinic when I schedule the surgery, ah. she'll give them the preoperative counseling then. A lot of times the schedule date, the schedule time doesn't happen in clinic. So she will then call them within the week prior to the procedure, prescribe the medications as we'll talk about that she takes the day before the procedure. And then afterwards, she'll call everyone within seven days with specific questions that she asked. Obviously, in the beginning of rolling this all out, we didn't quite get to everyone, but now it's just kind of in our, our repertoire. And do you have like a standard order set? that you use? Yeah, so we actually, we use Epic at Chella, and we actually came up with pre and post operative order sets that we now use and that are, and are happy to share with any program who's interested in implementing ERAS. That would be great. We would, we would certainly like to see it because we're sure thinking about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I guess, uh, Krista, this is a great opportunity to sort of plug your multi-center study. Yeah, so currently at CHOA, we have, we've had a, over 100 cases that we have data collected for. And um, I had a fellows research consortium through NASPAG protocol submitted in the summer. And we have Colorado Children's is actively involved and started recruiting patients for this this summer. And we have a few other programs who are also interested in taking part. So I really look forward to spreading the ERAS knowledge and wealth and really hope that it becomes standard of care for PedsGyne. It's awesome. And I know, and I don't, Dr. Hillard and I are definitely interested in talking more with you and 
if other people are interested, what's the best way to access? Yeah. So to just contact me either via my email address, krista.childress at emory.edu. You can also go to the NASPAG website um, and then other the fellows research consortium, there's contact information there for this active ongoing recruitment for the ERAS study. So I envision this occurring over the next couple of years until we really fine tune. I think the other thing is too, we have our ERAS protocol, but every institution's a little bit different. Every anesthesia team is a little bit less or more comfortable with some of the medications we use. So I'd also be interested in looking at what components truly are working, right? We do all these different components, but are there some that we don't have to do? Um, and also looking at programs such as yours that may or may not be doing ERAS right now and comparing it to after implementation, like a lot of the pediatric surgery programs have done that I wasn't able to do because there was no gynecology at show up prior to me. Right. So have your sort exactly. of control group to compare. Interesting. Right. I mean, I think one, one incredible asset of ERAS for us during COVID has been the opportunity to really optimize you know, even though we don't have formal implementation at my prior position, we were doing it, you know, solely. Great. So I have a lot of experience with it too. And I think it's optimized the ability to keep surgery going during COVID times because we can ensure, you know, a quick discharge and recovery and minimize return to the ED. So I think it's allowed us to do, still do the surgeries we need to do, um, even though Absolutely. we're having such restrictions for hospital. So okay. it's been a little tricky. I have a couple of additional questions, Krista, if I, sure. if I may. Um, of course. In, in your study, the patients were aged 11 to 18, so pretty much early adolescence on. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. about your experience with younger kids. Yeah, so I personally have not done... So when I think of ERAS, I think of all components in terms of nerve blocks, and then specifically using gabapentin, which I never really used prior to ERAS. And so I personally have not done major laparoscopic or open procedures on anyone, I, I would say less than 10 since I've been at CHOA. But my pediatric surgery and urology colleagues, especially plastic surgery, do it for every age group, including infants, and they've had great success. So I, I definitely don't fear doing that in the younger kids as well. Interesting. I guess the the follow up question and, and additional question there is related to epidurals. So we don't do most of our laparoscopies or mm -hmm. laparotomies or many laparotomies with epidural. So we're not mm -hmm. used to doing that. Um, are you? Um, I, I'm wondering a little bit about uh, selling that to patients or, or talking about the advantages. I mean, I'm perfectly fine doing it with an epidural, but our anesthesia folks have not been used to doing that, and patients haven't been used to our talking about epidurals. Yeah, so that's a great point to bring up. So in terms of the different options for like nerve blocks and epidurals, I actually personally don't use epidurals either. Um, that's just some anesthesiologists and some surgeons prefer that. I find that nerve blocks are by far and away better because it gets these patients up and moving. So what I've been doing is for... For my laparoscopy, I usually just use local at the site of the incisions because there's only three small incisions. Um, there are some pediatric surgeons who are doing rectus sheath blocks for their laparoscopies, depending on where they're doing their incisions. As same with mini laps, I usually will only do local unless I'm concerned I may have to make a larger incision. 
And then I'll do, I'll have anesthesia do a QL or tap block. But for my open cases, I generally go straight for nerve blocks because our anesthesia colleagues are so good at doing them and I've had great success. So that's a, so, so that's a local block in addition to general? Yes. Okay, so that wasn't entirely clear from the, from the article that that was an adjunct to your general anesthesia. So even with the epidural, the patient would not... Hmm. I'm, I'm just wondering. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, so everyone's under general. And then really most of it is reducing these blocks have been shown to reduce narcotic use intraoperatively as well as postoperatively. Okay. Okay. And so I believe in my prior training, I felt like we were doing a lot of epidurals, but I've noticed that the nerve blocks have adequate analgesia post-op and they're actually up and moving the night of the procedure, which is wonderful. Yeah. So Krista, what did you say? Are you doing the top locks typically yourself or is, are your anesthesia team and fellows doing them? What's your top Yeah, so it's actually experience? the anesthesia team doing it. They, we have a pain service. We're very lucky to have a pain service on our at our institution. So they're the, all the ones doing it. And basically prior to the procedure, I talked to them about where my incisions are going to be, what type of procedure I'm going to do. And then they decide what type of block will be appropriate. I will say initially when we were doing this, we were doing they were doing a lot of tap blocks. But instead, now they've been moving more towards um, QL, quadratus lumborum blocks, because we're noticing it has a better coverage for both somatic and visceral pain. So those have been working very well. Well, that's good to know. That's good to think about. And what do you know what they're using for the block? Are they using lidocaine? or? The you know what? Lacking? I think it depends. I, it's both. It depends on the institution. I work at two hospitals. So it just depends on the anesthesia okay. team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's actually been my experience too. I just, I like to see like the gold standard here based on all your experience. It's awesome. Um, and then I just, I just had like a couple questions. One was like right in line with um, Dr. Hillary Paula's um, same thing. We're thinking about kids maybe who can't articulate their pain or have developmental disabilities. Have you, how have you yeah. modified or seen outcome with that? Yeah, so that's, a, fan imagine it would help. that's a fantastic question. So, so I talked to all the parents about that specific question prior to proceeding with surgery. And I mean, the thing is, either way I'm doing ERAS and I'm minimizing narcotics no matter what. I would say that, you know, a lot of families, even though they're nonverbal, they'll, they'll understand different ways in which they act to know that they're in pain because they've been around them so commonly. Um, but so I've probably done probably about 10 on kids in this, um, in this category. And I haven't had any issues with requiring narcotics. I actually find a lot of them have a higher, seem to have a higher pain tolerance, which the parents will say also. So it's a valid concern though, but if the pain is not controlled with the gabapentin, Tylenol and ibuprofen, I will provide narcotic pain medication because everyone needs to be comfortable. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, this was a great study, and I think it's going to be a great start to some good surgical trends. No, thank had. you. So thank you for being the, the instigator for all of us. No, I'm just excited by all questions? of this. I have, um, I have been using some aspects of ERAS, and I, I remember when reports about ERAS in adults quite a while back, I've been, I was thinking that I'm doing a lot of those things anyway. So I've always sent my laparoscopy patients home on the same day. That's just been routine. I've always taken the catheter out right away, um, even for laparotomies. 
you know, so there's some, there's some aspects, um, but I love that it all gets put together. And, um, you know, clearly I think the outcomes are good in adults and it makes sense that they would be good in adolescents and younger kids too. Absolutely. I do think that the biggest change in ERAS, because it sounds like you've been doing this, this some of the components, is really the medications and moving away from narcotics. I think that's yep. the biggest change that we're trying to push. And I love it that you you talk about scheduled pain meds. I've done that for a long time, too. So the Tylenol and, and uh, I, I have never used gabapentin for short term use. I've, I've used it for other things, you know, mm-hmm. chronic pain. I've used it for for um, in that situation. So so it's not foreign for me to use the drug. It's just I haven't used it in an acute setting. Like right. This. Yeah, well, excellent. Well, thanks again, Dr. Childress, for your great study. And I refer everyone to the August edition to review it. Also great tables and a great YouTube video called Lego Surgery about ERAS for kids and cartoons. It's it's a very fun video. (laughs) Well, thank you again. Great. You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Childress. Um, So we'll just dive right in here to the August edition. Um, One of the first things that we definitely wanted to highlight was a topic near and dear to my heart, which um, was the NASPAC position statement, the advocacy statement titled Provision of Reproductive Health for Teens During a Pandemic. Um, It's a must read for all. And I think, you know, the key point out of this um, statement is really that reproductive health care is essential health care during a pandemic. Uh, And I think it points uh, clearly to that and just talks about and highlights um, the different facets of provisions for contraception that can be altered and made for uh, these really challenging times. Did you have any other thoughts about? Yeah, I I think it's, it's an excellent statement. I think one of the points is that that contraceptive care can often be provided fairly easily um, through uh, telehealth. Um, with Absolutely. the exception of, of insertion of IUDs and implants, <laughs> of course, we, we can't quite do that through telehealth yet, um, but, but important. But the other importance here is NASPAC making a statement that is outward facing to the world that says that what we do is really important to the health of, of our patients and teens. And so as states restrict and, and we're saying that things like access to abortion isn't time sensitive or critical, um, important for us as an organization to say that, I'm sorry, but it is truly essential right. care. So that's, that's the right. strong NASPAC statement and I love it. It's, it's very important. It's true. And I think for, I think one of the nice things about it too, I forgot to mention, and I wanted to reiterate is there's some nice points in there about how to modify and alter your care during a pandemic from, you know, drive up Decoprevera injections to some more autonomy for IUDs and this huge, vast increase in promotion of postpartum larks. So um, I think there's a lot to be learned and gained from that article that hopefully maybe can be a silver lining to continue um, when this pandemic time has passed. So um, that's just right at the, the beginning of, uh, this, of the August edition. So that's a great one. And the next article is a review article titled Dating Violence in Adolescence Implications for Girls' Sexual Health. And Dr. Hillard, I'll let you just dive right into that. Absolutely. This is a review 
um, and it's a review, a review by Meredith Joppa. And basically, um, really important, um, looking at uh, the um, review of, of dating violence during adolescence and the correlation with sexual risk behaviors. Um, and the, the co-occurrence. The one thing that was new to me here, and it may not be new to those in adolescent medicine, but it was new to me, and I will admit that. Um, she discussed the framework of the addressing framework, um, which um, relates to risks for either risk or protective factors regarding dating violence and uh, sexual risk behaviors. And addressing stands for age, developmental or acquired disability, religion, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, indigenous heritage, and national origin. And so some of these factors are factors that we, we know pretty well increase the risk. So girls with developmental disabilities are at increased risk for um, abuse of, of many kinds, um, including risk for uh, dating violence and sexual risk behaviors. Um, some of these others and the, the intersection of these identities that uh, an individual may have are pretty important. So I, I really learned something about that framework as a way to think about risks and protection. So I thought it was a, a nice review overall and it, it taught me something, which is what a good yeah. review should do. Yeah, absolutely. And then have a good mnemonic in there is always helpful for remembering and teaching too. So it is a great article. And then lastly, uh, our final article of the journal and of our podcast today, is a, a really interesting one, and it's titled Induced Abortion According to Socioeconomic Status in Chile. And that was by Dr. Andrea Huneas, Daniela Capella, Vitalkia Cabicias, and Gabriel Cavada. And uh, I think I'm just gonna leave this right to you too, Dr. Hiller, because you pointed out some very important implications from this study that we definitely wanted to share on our podcast today. Well, I thought this was Absolutely fascinating and important, uh, given South America and how abortion in many, many, many countries, the vast majority of countries in South America is um, illegal, forbidden by law. Um, and these data came from a survey. It was a Chilean national youth survey um, from 2015, which included a question about induced abortion. And there were about almost 2,500 um, sexually active young women from 15 to, I think the, old, the upper age limit was 29. 5% overall reported a previous induced abortion. So even in a country where abortion is illegal, women still have abortions. They, we know from other data, um, are more likely to be unsafe abortions, and that's of real concern uh, in countries where um, abortion is, is forbidden by law. They looked at socioeconomic status. They also looked at other factors, uh, rural versus urban, indigenous versus not, age of sexual debut, contraception use, religious or political affiliation, 
And it was really the socioeconomic status that correlated. And what they found was that um, young women of higher socioeconomic status were nearly five times as likely as those with lower socioeconomic status to report having had a previous abortion. And if you were a middle socioeconomic status, it was still greater than the lower socioeconomic status. And, and what this says to me is, is that those women have better access. They may be able to travel outside the country to get an abortion. Um, and, and so I think this is an important article and uh, important for us to think about um, what I understand and is reported um, by Dr. Huneas in, in the article is that in 2017, there were some exceptions um, to the, um, to the uh, prohibition on abortion, risk to the mother's life, fatal fetal anomalies, and rape as exceptional circumstances. Um, but even so, um, access to abortion is still fairly, fairly restricted in Chile. So important that JPEG can publish um, such, a, such an article. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think the other thing that I definitely caught my eye from this article, and I know sometimes it just, it's, it still surprises me, but um, the adolescent and young women with higher socioeconomic advantage actually reported more induced abortions compared to those with low access, which you know you kind of elaborated on because it has to do with access and it's not necessarily need, obviously. So it just, I think it's an important one. I'm glad it was in the journal. The opposite of what we, we see um, typically in countries where uh, access to abortion is, is um, more available. Exactly, exactly. So well done JPEG for publishing that. It, it gives us some insight. Another, and then it sort of ties back to that reproductive health during a pandemic remains essential and important. So, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for a wonderful podcast, Dr. Hillard, and I look forward to our next one. All right. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye.